Hey, hey, this is Jeff Liske, Great Lakes Dude. Welcome back to the Wet Fly Swing Great Lakes Podcast. This episode, we will continue where we left off, building our road map to Great Lakes Steelhead. We're going to cover the equipment, presentations, and of course, the flies. Here we go. Our main man, Jeff Liske, is back on the podcast, and he is going to continue on the deep dive into all things Great Lakes. But before we get there, let's hear a classic Great Lakes story from Jeff before we get started. Dave and I chatted a little bit before the episode, and we thought it might be really cool to do a little stir at each beginning of each episode. So let's step back into our time machine and head back to the year 1971 when I landed my first King Salmon. It happened on Rocky River, my home river. At the time, it was mostly 90% salmon program. Kings and cohos, a lot of snagging going on, and not many steelhead yet or migratory trout. There were a few, but the program really wasn't getting going. It was super important to be standing in the river at O-Dark 30 and be casting at first light when the bite was the best. So one weekend morning in October, I suited up in my Kmart rubber chest high waders and I jumped on my bike with my five foot six inch five star Garcia Conlon fiberglass rod matched with the Mitchell 300 spinning reel that I put, you know, eight pound test trialing on it and headed to the river. I got to the river and it was still dark, but I could see the salmon rolling all over the pool and just praying that I could hook into one and just maybe even hopefully land one. I started off using my go-to black number two rooster tail spinner. You know, that was the deal back then with the rooster tail spinners. And after a while, I never got a grab. I saw a few fish caught. So I decided to change up to a chrome plated spoon that I assembled from a kit that I bought from Jan's Netcraft. And I doctored it up with blue fingernail polish and I began the cast. On my third cast, it happened and the fight was on. It seemed like an hour before I landed that 18-pound king, but I'm sure it was, you know, it's only like minutes, right? From that morning on, fishing was the only thing I could think of 24-7, and it's still the way it goes today. Pretty cool, you know? Send us Dave and I your story of how you got into fishing, of course. We love to always hear those. Interesting thing back in those days was how it was common to keep fish and take them home for a photo and consume it for dinner. Just operating procedure, right? Things have changed drastically. So cool now with the all the instant information with our cell phones and taking pictures that catch and release stream side photos has been a, a better choice for the fish in general, I feel. So thanks for the listen. And now we're going to dive back into making that road map. There you go. A classic Jeff Liske story. If you have a Great Lakes question, at any point along the way, you can check in with Jeff, greatlakesflyfishing.com, or you can send Jeff an email or myself an email anytime and let us know if you have a question or if you've been enjoying this podcast. Before we get rolling here today, let's hear from our sponsor. Bear Vault has the perfect solution to keep your provisions secure while heading into the backcountry this season. Bear Vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. Proper food storage is one key to an epic trip in the backcountry. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash bear vault to check out this must-have solution for the outdoors now.
you support this podcast and your safety this season by clicking through that link right now. And now, the Great Lakes dude breaking out his magic. Let's do this. To refresh your memory, where we left off, we stopped at the Steelhead's Awareness Zone and how they moved to your fly. Presenting your fly first starts off with your equipment. You know, one of the most important questions I get asked, what rod and line should I buy? Fairly overwhelming decision, right? Man, looking at all the options, first choose your venue that you're going to fish the most. Where are you going to use the rod, right? Right around home, are you going to use it for destination fishing? Use that thought process. What is your home water? That's going to get the most joy and the bang for your buck out of your rod. I'd love to say one rod would do it well, but we all know that's not reality. Plus, I just like buying more gear that I never use and it sits in my basement. (laughs) Pretty funny, but you know, that's the truth. Biggest hurdle when fishing a river system and choosing a rod is that the fish are stationary We are stationary, but the water is moving between us and the fish. Bottom line is longer rods help us manage the lines, control our presentation better than shorter ones, by keeping the line off and on the water surface when needed. Things to consider when you're going to get that rod. The type of presentation, is it just going to be swung fly, is it going to be indicator, are you going to mix and match that day, right? What is the size of the watershed? Is it going to be pretty big, your home water, is it fairly small? That's pretty important. And the size of fly, I think that's the most important, not so much the fly, but it basically boils down to what's on the end of your rigging. What are you trying to cast? How far and will the fly, line, and rod turn that rigging over easily for you? It's all about payload delivery when choosing rods and lines. There's no bad rod or line, just bad rod to line matching for what you're trying to achieve. Mass moves mass. Big flies, big sink tips, and indicator rigs with split shot require grain weight to make casting and fishing more pleasurable. Michigan and larger rivers, they bottom bounce with pencil lead up to three quarters of an ounce, you know, just to maintain proper depth near the river bottom. And, you know, of course, that's going to require at least an eight weight rod. You know, six and sevens just doesn't get the job done. Looking at single head rods in general, and we're going to classify all these rods now, 10 foot, six, seven, and eight weights are our choice. Seven weights will get the job done in Ohio, PA, and all the other small venues that run into all the Great Lakes. Doesn't matter if you're across the border in Canada or where you're at. That's a pretty good standard rule of thumb. Eight weight rods now, Michigan, New York, Wisconsin, and larger rivers around the Great Lakes, that's a really good choice. If you're looking to do a little traveling outside of some of your smaller venues and you don't want to buy two rods, that's a good choice. Now, when it comes down to lines for single-hand rods, you basically have two choices. 
look at it in two different categories, streamer lines or steelhead taper lines. And all brands are great, and they all offer these same types of lines. My go-to is a Scientific Mastery Series Titan. For my home waters, they're very small, where long cast of 60 feet is fairly long. This Titan line is only 33 and a half feet long head, but it comes from the factory two weights over than your standard um, line would. So it just makes things, you know, roll casting easier. If I want to loop on a sinking leader to swing a few flies, I can. If I want to put on a big heavy weighted fly, I can still strip big dumbbell eye flies with this. Most of my casts are under 55 feet. So it just puts it in the wheelhouse of making life easier for myself and my clients. Now, if I want to fish a little larger venues and look at steelhead tapers, these generally are in and around the 61-foot head. They're a little longer than normal. I use the SA Mastery Anadro Indicator one. Some of the other companies call it the Nymphine line. And most of the time, they're a fairly aggressive weight forward line. And they're usually one to one and a half weights over your rod to make things easier. This will help out for your bigger rivers, your longer casts, farther mending situations, and just make it a little more pleasurable when you're stepping into the arena of where you're making casts consistently over 40 feet or longer. So if I had to choose one rod, you know, that might do it all, where you could fish the smaller venues and the larger venues, I'd have to say it'd be a 10-foot, 8-weight single-hand rod. It just, overall, you can get the job done. You won't have to buy a, a 7 and an 8. It's going to be a little heavy on the smaller venues, but it might be a little bit not undergun when you get to your larger venues. So now let's look at switch and two-hand rod setups. Ohio, PA, New York, and all the other Great Lakes venues, you need to classified in two categories. The first one's going to be the, you know, a switch, trout, spay, and short spays. This family um, of rods start out at 10 foot 6 inches and they go all the way up to 11 foot 9 inches and they range anywhere from a 4 weight to 8 weight. That is a really, really good rod looking at a lot of the smaller runoff streams in Steelhead Alley. You know, PA, some of the smaller streams in New York, of course, my home river, up into the smaller venues in the Michigan. And then when you look at this and you try to, you know, your choice of decisions aligned, it's like it, it can get a little overwhelming. You know, you got what, Skagit, Scandi, Switch. I generally go with Skagit lines. I swing a lot of flies. I can put a floating tip on a Skagit if I had to and use an indicator rig if push comes to shove. I usually stay in the SA Spay Light series. I usually go about 330 to 420 grain rod windows. That's my favorite. I always like using an integrated shooting line where the head is integrated into the shooting line. So you're not dealing with a loop to loop connection through your tip section guides where you're, when you go to land a fish or you're making short casts. And in that grain window of 330 to 420, it handles sink seven tips and even some T11. If you push comes to shove again, you can turn over some T11s. It's not the most pleasurable, but you can get the job done, you know, if necessary. 
If I had to pick one grain window that you could probably get the job done with a switch rod or a short spay, it would be like that 400 to 450. Reason being is, you know, in a lot of these runoff streams during high water events, this opens the door for using intermediate sinking skagit heads. That just allows you to fish higher flows and use lighter tips where, you know, that grain weight don't turn, doesn't turn over T14 real well. So it just opens that door for that and allows you to just to turn over big flies too with water conditions that are stained. It's just a pretty good window recommendation to stay in. What about two-handers? You know, so two-hand, true two-hand rods, people all call them spay rods, but, you know, the proper terminology is two-handers. They start out at 12 foot and they go all the way up to 15 or 16 foot. But in our Great Lakes region, we use 12 footers to 15 footers. They start out at six weights and they go all the way up to 10 weights. And we have a, we have a purpose for all of them. You know, we have such a diverse fisheries and size of watersheds and what we can do. Larger venues in Steelhead Alley, you know, um, during high flows, you can jump up to 480 to 520 grains with a full two-hander just to make things more enjoyable, you know, just not where you're not fighting the cast. Sometimes if you get a smaller fish, you know, those larger two-handers are going to be a little, little over-gunned, but in general, the fishing part of it would be, you know, a little easier. You know, now looking at, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, New York, and Canadian larger rivers that, you know, even if they're not as wide as some of the smaller venue runoff rivers, they have a lot of soul to them, a lot of push, right? The current in this cubic feet per second flow is higher. You're going to need to step up the grain weight. You know, this is where you're going to take your short spays and your really heavy switch rods and your mid to you know mid-sized two-handers and you're going to match them with 480 to 600 grain Skagit heads or Scandi heads and the good thing about this is as you get the grain weight now you can start turning over T14 you know T18 if you're necessary under really high conditions you know big eight nine weight ten foot sticks you can also fish big, long, floating lines. And we do have a few venues that this is possible. The Grand River that flows in on the north shores of Lake Erie, you can use wet flies and dry flies, and we can use longer heads and floating because these fish will come to the surface. Also, St. Mary's River that drains Superior into Huron and Michigan, you know, we have a great dry fly, wet fly game in the middle of summer for Atlantic salmon. And then another use for these big long sticks with big floating lines would be on some of the bigger rivers in Michigan, um, a lot of the guides are using big long lines to fish, big sliding indicator rigs to drift with big long leads, you know, for big long drifts on the, some of the bigger rivers. So that's a little bit wrapping up the rods and the lines. I know it can get confusing, but now let's chat on presentation and the mindset. This is going to go back to all the other things we talked about in the previous episode. Think of what a steelhead needs are. What is their home waters? Base camp. You know, that's a lot of times you really need to think about it. 
Is it only a hundred foot or is it a quarter mile long? This determines on the size of the watershed. Four things they need is going to be a low water sanctuary, you know, when water gets really low, a high water refuge, if the river blows out, where are they going to be? And then holding water that relates to the water temperatures and eventually spawning areas. These are things you have to consider when you're looking at what I call a steelhead's base camp. This, you know, sometimes is not as confined as you might think. You know, it, it, on my home rivers, it might be within visual sight uh, of where you're standing. Or, you know, it might be actually, you know, two complete river bends around if it's a larger river system because, the, you know, the runs are so long. You know, depending on the run timing and the strain, you know, this could repeat multiple times during the season. Hence, you know, understanding the life cycle of the fish at the time. You know, a lot of times we get a run of fish early and these fish are fall spawners are in and they're moving out and you have fresh fish, winter fish coming in and then eventually it repeats again for spring fish. So it's all about the river system and knowing the strain and the calendar year. You know, West Coast steelhead run timings is fairly solid. You know, they've got them pretty dialed in. Those wild fish are not quite like the Great Lakes hatchery and some of our fish that are naturally producing. We have a little more of a, a shotgun approach compared to the wild fish. Moving on, you know, let's talk once you get on the water and make your first cast. I think that's pretty important. Look at the mindset. Think of your fly line or your spay head. It could be from 64 foot long to 15 foot long skagit head as a bobber. Right, that's right. I said the word bobber. The better you can control that bobber, the line, the better your indicator will dead drift or your fly will swing. Once you get that through understanding how to manipulate the bobber, that you are the captain, think of that bobber as the ship, and you're the captain, and you're manipulating the line, the bobber, you know, and unengage from the presentation and let their line do the fishing for you, the more fish you will connect with, for sure. Choosing a game plan and putting it all together, I call it a playbook, right? Think about a playbook, you know, is it swing? Is it bottom bounce? Is it indicator? Or is it high stick nymphing? You know, What's the choice? You know, that's the cool thing about it. If you're just starting out, my recommendation to you is learn it all. It will just make you a, just a better all-around angler. I like to call it being a steelheader, just not a fly angler. Because once you learn all the techniques, you don't necessarily have to use them, but once you learn them, I feel that you have a better working knowledge of how to locate fish, you have a better knowledge of how to use your preferred presentation better because you just are connected with the whole fishery and the fish itself. My suggestion to you would be to allocate a little portion of your day to work on something new. Maybe explore a new water. 
work on a different presentation, maybe swing a fly or take the fly, swung fly off and run an indicator through there just to make sure there's no fish in that run, just to give you confidence again, right? Or, you know, maybe work on your spay cast. You know, one good thing that I think is a good tip is try using your non-dominant hand to cast every other run or in a windy condition. Yeah, you're going to struggle. You're going to get grouchy and angry because it's going to be hard. But let me tell you, if you can use your non-dominant and your off-shoulder sides switching hands, it is just going to be make your life way simpler in, your, in adverse fishing conditions. Looking at the swung fly over the indicator, that's going to be a little bit of a choice. Let's look at some pros and cons of the swung fly. So everybody likes to do it. It's cool. You know, you get to bomb out these way cool casts. You get to learn casts. But let's just dig into this a little bit. Because I do get asked a lot. You know, everybody wants to swung, you know, swung fly and swing a fly and catch a steelhead or even a you know, warm water species. But, you know, there are some things to look at. Some of the pros, you know, I think is you're able to fish higher water levels. You know, you cover more water, and it is a great searching tool for you to find new key holding and resting areas. It really showed me in places that I never really thought a fish could lie was when I started swinging flies, and I was hooking fish on high water conditions that were 10 foot off the bank. Or when the water was out of proportion in British Columbia, skating dry flies and I realized they're only like six to eight feet off the bank. They're not out any more than that. So it it's a very good learning tool. And there's less casting fatigue either. You know, if your shoulder's starting to bother you and you're going to engage with two hands on long fishing days, it's it's really good. Even using an indicator on it, you can use both hands to take that wear and tear off your shoulder. And there's other options. Overhead casting on piers, jetties, and break walls. You know, it just makes it way easier to make long casts. Uh, you have to get a stripping basket, but, you know, you might even be able to use them, you know, for saltwater applications, too, if you're so desired. Now, what about the cons? Well, the cons, you know, it's not the best in low water conditions because if you have to use waterborne casts and you don't have much back casting room, it can get a little noisy. You know, you could always go to scanty lines and quiet it down a little bit. But um, in a lot of my smaller venues, when the water gets low, there's no flow. So at that time, a single hand rod would be way more productive. The next would be you do not connect with as many fish. I am going to go on record saying that, you know, the challenge of swung fly fishing is that you are not going to expect to connect and land as many fish as you would with other techniques. I'm going to say it's as probably as high as seven or, you know, to one, maybe five to one during some courses of the day. Are there days that, you know, the swung fly is going to outproduce a dead drift for sure, but in reality, you will not connect with as many fish. It's more of the challenge as an angler. And, you know, you're going to need to get some specific lines to do the swung fly to make things easier as we went over all the different lines available. And last but not least, there is a little more of a learning curve when it comes down to swung fly because everybody thinks they just hack it out there and just let it roll around. But, you know, you have to fish every single cast 
just like you would fishing an indicator. So there is a little more learning curve, you know, when it comes down to that. Let's look at, you know, the single hand now. You know, the single hand game comes in different varieties like we talked about, you know, bottom bouncing. And it, now I'm not going to say you can't swing with a single hand. That's the thing that I think everybody might be a little confused with is that everybody thinks that you need to have a spay rod or this big rod to swing flies. That is not true. You can get away with many, many swung fly presentations with sinking leaders or skagit heads with small sink tips on them with your single hander. You know, my you know, recommendation is always start out with the rod you have and try it before you dive into buying, buying any more big sticks. So the pros of single hand is you have to have one, right? You just got to have a single hand steelhead rod on the Great Lakes. It has all the different, you know, it's the most effective and the most versatile. And it just, you have to have it, you know, in your arsenal and then move from there. You know, you can use it for other species. Just because it's a 10-foot rod or 10-and-a-half-foot rod doesn't mean you can't go chase bass or pike or anything else or light saltwater species with it either. So it's a pretty good, you know, purchase price just to have in your arsenal. The cons now with single hand is that, you know, um, you know, included in this, the aging angler sometimes, you know, it's a casting fatigue. You know, casting all day with a single hand rod, if you're turning over big flies or a longer cast or, you know, larger venues, you can get wore out casting all day. Casting into the wind, you know, it just sometimes makes it a little bit harder with a single hand rod. You know, the cool thing is that you can't make a mistake. You know, you just got to get out there on the water and feel the river push against your waders. You know, that's just a great day, no matter what rod you have or what rod you decide to fish with for the day. Drifthook has pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your fly fishing journey. Their professionally curated fly fishing kits are crafted so you can catch more on your next outing. Each kit is organized by species and includes instructional videos and easy follow guides. I've got the Nymph box right here in my pack, and I've been loving this. They've got everything from the tiny zebra midges with a little flash or all the way up to their large go-to guide flies. This box has you covered for all conditions. And were you thinking Euro Nymphs? They got that covered as well. Beautiful Euro Nymph flies, all the key flies you need to get going, whether you're a brand new to it or a veteran, Drift Hook has the flies for you. Along with their nymph boxes, they have dry flies, streamers, and all the education to go along with all these as well. These are fly shop quality flies, hand tied and inspected before being carefully packed neatly into these boxes. And Matt personally packs and prepares these boxes like he was tucking the kids in for bed at night. Cozy, comfortable, and just the right amount of love. Whether you're an experienced angler who needs to stock up on some flies or get a great gift for the family, uh, Drift Hook has you covered. Check them out right now. That's Drift Hook, wetflyswing.com slash Drift Hook and use swing at checkout to get 15% off your next order. You support this podcast and small business by checking out Drift Hook right now. So moving on, you know, fishing is a game of angles. That's going to be the key. Think of it angler position, boat position, rod position, and casting angle 
are all part of the equation when you're going to present a fly, no matter what presentation you choose. You know, we have two ways of presentation. This is the way you have to look at it. Parallel with the stream flow and the river banks, or across the river from the far bank to the near bank where you're standing, or the boat is positioned. You know, this is going to bring us back to where the other episode we talked about the grid system, or the graph paper analogy. This is where you're standing in front of a pool and you lay a piece of graph paper on the surface of the water. And you have the lines that run parallel with the current and then you have the lines that run across against the current. And we use the analogy of how big or how small do we make these little squares. And remember we talked about that fish's awareness zone. Always consider water temps and water current speed that you expect the fish to hold in. You know, don't use the mindset, oh, you know, I caught one here last time and expects to be there. I think that's what I see a lot of, you know, anglers that don't get a chance to get out on the water that much. And I'm guilty of it too, is if I've caught a fish there the day before, the week before, I said, well, maybe, you know, they probably should be in there again, right? most likely they will be where you left them or they'll be fish in that one of your favorite areas or runs. But what I want you to think about is that they could be in a different section of the run. Remember how we've talked about dividing that run up into three sections? Just think about water temperature. Those fish could have been you know, the water could have been a little warmer and those fish were in the head of the pool. This time that when you go back to revisit your favorite section or runs, these water temperatures could be colder and the fish just move back, you know, anywhere from 50 feet to could be almost, you know, 100 yards depending on the length of the run. So think about that too. When you are using your drifting and dead drift presentations, this is where you're going to imagine using the parallel lines of the graph paper. You know, you're going to be drifting parallel with the current. You're going to be trying to match the bubble speed that's running down the, the seams and you're watching the bubbles and working down the run. You're going to want to try to match that and, you know, duplicate their speed. Starting, you know, working the near shorter shore waters and working out into the current. You know, rule of thumb to start off with, you know, when it says where do you cast, is with cold water, 38 degrees and under, fish the near slower waters, and then work your way out to the current. Meaning that start out a rod, rod and a half away. And if there's any current there at all, it's, it could be really painfully slow, but in cold water, fish close and then work your way out to the current when water temperatures start warming up you know 40 to 50 degrees then you can start working closer to the seam and work into the current a little more aggressively and then if the water starts to get over 50 you can start in the seam and then work right into that main current right away i think 
that gives fishing guides a really good, um, I'd say, opportunity over just the average angler. Is that we can eliminate water very quickly just by knowing where the fish aren't with water temperatures. Like walking by water that you might consider that you fishing, but we'll walk by it because we know that the speed is not basically going to be right for that water temperature or water visibility. You know, think of invisible structure. That's the key. Everybody thinks of like, oh yeah, you know, steelhead, of course you use wood and they use rocks, right? That's visible structure. But think of water temps versus current speed more so when you're choosing your, you know, casting um, areas over actual visual structure. So we know on the graph paper that we're going to be using the parallel lines. Now, what about the swing game? So the swing game is the same thing. Use the same process when swinging flies. You know, warmer water, expect the grabs out into the main current or the seam, you know, farther away from you. And colder temps off the seam or even, you know, a lot of times on the hang downs. Do not, when that water temperature gets down in below 40 degrees, especially in the 30s, do not get in a rush to strip your fly back into the head and make another cool cast out to the far bank. You know, everybody loves to make these cool casts, right? But I'm just going to go on record. That's probably the number one thing that I have to tell my clients is in colder water, these fish are going to gravitate, like we said, to that near closer water, that slower water, and these fish are not going to be super active and moving towards your fly. So there's times that I'll let that fly marinate and on the dangle swinging down there below me for, you know, seconds. Not just immediately it straightens out and strip it in and bomb it out again. You know, if the water's really warm, you know, of course you don't let it on the hang down as long as you expect them to get them out in that faster current. Think of how you can present the fly the best in the ground zero area. I think that's the main thing when it comes down to a swung fly, is that we all sort of expect, you know, when we're fishing an indicator of like, oh, that's where we think we're going to get the bobber to go down, right? Well, I think as a swung fly angler, use that same analogy right? Think about angler position, right? Am I going to be on river left or river right if possible? And where is going to be the best position for me to intercept the fish? A lot of times, um, if it's a ledgy situation or wood that I expect those fish to be laying against, I will actually position myself on that side of the river, even if it's a little bit of a nasty wade, that way when my fly comes down on the hang down, that fly is going to be hanging down in their faces. It's going to be hanging off the ledge, where if I was on the opposite side, I cast to it, that fly, by the time it gets down, you'd have to have a really active fish to come out and charge it. Um, warm water temperatures or summer runs, yeah, for sure, but you know, in and around the Great Lakes, a lot of times we, you know, you want to position yourself. We're on the hang down. You expect to catch the fish. Next would be line mending. 
you know, you're going to have to be pretty good at line mending. And I do mean an aggressive men's, not small little line men's for trout fishing. Then there's also step men's, you know, to get this fly to marinate in the depth that you need is that sometimes you have to step sometimes after your cast. Sometimes even when I'm swinging the fly, I actually will step a few steps downstream if I feel the fly is not getting in that ground zero where I think I might get a grab or the fly is going too fast. Then of course the casting angle. The farther upstream you cast, the longer you have time to manipulate, mend it, do what you need to get it down. The steeper casting angle of course is going to, you know, basically come down to like, okay, I, I don't want to get as deep as fast. And then, of course, tip selection and fly selections. Those all, you know, come into play, which we'll get into. Some venues are very, very technical. My home waters are not classic swing waters. They're smaller. They have a lot of little nooks and crannies and ledges that you have to, like, manipulate and cast. Every cast, think about how to get the fly in there. It just, you know, each cast to be fished, you know, you know, just not use the mindset of let it, you know, cast it out and let it roll. Before we, you know, dig back deeper into the swing game and uh, on the indicator rigs, we need to go back to the rules of three also. In these rules of three, when it comes down to the actual rigging um, for all these, is that we need to have three sizes of everything. Just like we broke the river down into three sections and the run down into three sections, think of water levels. This is another key element that I see a lot of anglers struggle over is because they, they're used to having the water, you know, really maybe a good conditions or really low. But when the water gets really, really high or blown out of proportion, they sort of struggle, you know, a little bit. So when you have your single hand rod and you're using indicators, I want you to look at purchasing three sizes of indicators and three sizes of shot. And then also three sizes of flies, which we'll get into. And this varies from all the way down to very low water conditions where you can see the fish all the way up to where it's gritty 8 inches to 12 inches of visibility and then fishing is just a struggle and of course this varies state to state so as we look at it the main thing when you're looking at it steelhead and trout need to be able to see your fly the bottom line we're not putting scent on our flies. We're not fishing bait. We're fishing a lot of times water that a conventional angler might not be fishing, which is probably a good thing sometimes. In gritty water, you know, they're not going to be as intimidated, right? So you don't have to worry about the size of the fly. My main rule is to keep it simple. My fly box has more size in color variations than it does different patterns, if that makes sense. A lot of times on runoff rivers, it's way less important to match the hatch, comparatively speaking to other states, Canada, Michigan, 
and some New York streams that have a lot of natural aquatic species in them and different bait fish patterns. But in a lot of situations, it's more size and color that really matter over the actual match the hatch. The rigging itself varies widely from each river, you know, and they all have their own specific tweaks. Key factors are having enough weight to get your flies down. And the other is leader length, right? So I think another thing that as a beginner a lot of times is that we talked about that three sizes of split shot or two or three different sizes or being able to adjust your pencil lead or your sink tips is that you're going to have different flows and you have to make sure your presentation and your flies are getting down where the business is really, down near the bottom within, you know, distance your flies and your weight system because you want to get down at least 8 to 12 inches off the bottom. So when we look at your weight in relationship to where it's placed to your flies, I call this the dog leash. This is pretty darn important from different venues and from state to state. In Steelhead Alley, we might go as short as 8 to 12 inches from our split shots or our sink tip to our flies. Because we're usually fishing a little bit dirtier water, but it's a lot of little ledges and it's a runoff shale system, spate rivers where these flies need to drop off and you need to get your weight right down with it. You could use weighted flies. That would be another instance you could do that, sure, and incorporate with longer leaders. But um, I generally use unweighted flies with shorter weight placement to flies. You know, if you're looking on the larger rivers um, in Michigan, in New York, where the waters are clear, you know, you might stretch it out to four to six feet. These fish are really heavily pressured. The water's cleaner. They have some water hydraulics where the steelhead not all the time around the bottom. So you want this really naturally flowing system that's coming through the river system. You know, rule of thumb is you start out maybe two foot, three feet, but if you're not getting not getting the results that you want, don't be afraid to lengthen up that dog leash and let that fly move around a little bit. You know, AKA, you know, especially on the Niagara River for sure, where those fish could be suspended anywhere along the water column in that river. Rule of thumb for the distance between your weight system or your tip system is cold or dirty water, fish it shorter, warm and clear waters, fish it longer away from it and experiment. And I'm sure everybody has their own opinion, but that's just a good general rule. In many, you know, the larger Great Lakes rivers, the most effective presentation is bottom bouncing with pencil lead. You know, to keep your flies near that bottom, you know, on the riverbed. Super simple once you dial in the amount of lead needed for the flows, but a lot of times you're going to be sweeping, you know, swinging underneath sweepers and that, and it is the go-to rig, regardless if you're wade fishing or off of a boat. You know, they call it the chuck and duck system in Michigan, and then also on the Niagara River. So I don't do it a lot. I've did it plenty in the past, but that might have to be a consideration to have the most success in some of these Great Lakes rivers. 
So now, you know, I think this is going to be a really hot topic, you know. Let's dive into the swing water, you know, the swing game and the waters that we try and chat about choosing the right sink tip. It's probably the most frequent question, you know, I get asked. Where the heck is my fly in the water column, right? Boy, you know, it's all about fish movement, you know, can they see it? Can they move vertically, horizontally? What's the water temperature? You know, there's only one way as a beginner that you really know where you're at. And it's when we get snagged on the bottom. And believe me, I get snagged on the bottom a lot. I fish extremely aggressive because most of the time my run timing of fish, the water temperature is fairly cold you know, very close to 40 degrees or under. And I don't get much movement from fish at all. So it takes the guessing game on for me is if I get a few snags during the course of the day or I'm swinging a run and I start casting more upstream 90 degrees from where I'm standing or the client's standing, I'd like to see what it takes to get to the bottom, you know, in that run. I'm getting pretty good at judging, and you will too. It takes things like that. But, you know, it just makes it simple to break things into threes again when it comes down to choosing a tip. And these are three things I want you to consider. What current speed are the fish holding in? So this is, goes back to what can you expect these fish to be laying in speed-wise because of the water temperature? That's the key. Water clarity. How well can they really see your fly? Do I have to slow this fly down, you know, where we're not driving by like a mafia drop-off and you're just blowing right by him? That's like, what the heck was that? Was that a fly? Was that a leaf? Whatever. And then their awareness zone, like we talked about. Moving to your fly. And that correlates to both water temperatures and clarity. And then, of course, you know, type of strain of fish too, but most of them are pretty consistent no matter where you go. On my home waters, you know, on the Erie Tribs, where we have all this technical swinging, my thought is choose the tip to where we thought that ground zero where the fish will be. That sweet spot, right? That everybody's heard of the spot on the spot, right? Are they in the slow, tanky water? Maybe in the fast-moving water? You know, thinking of where you want to catch the fish is like setting up the swing. So it presents the fly perfectly in the sweet spot. A lot of times if you're going to find out that, you know, oh, the grabs are coming like off the seam or I got that grab as soon as it was in that current. Sometimes is it is it on the hang down, right? So picking the tip that allows you to fish that water the most effectively. I'm going to throw a little, you know, story into this that really opened my eyes. One year when I was sleeping in the dirt the month of September up in British Columbia for four weeks, couch surfing around and swinging flies every day from dry flies to, you know, when the water started getting super cold, the big sink tips, floating down um, one of the rivers that were fairly narrow that had a pretty aggressive current to it, and 
for about two and a half, three weeks, I was getting some really nice fish, you know, those nice 12 to maybe up to 15 pound fish, but I didn't connect with any super big fish. And I was like, maybe they're just not in the river system, but it river cleaned up a whole lot. I was able to spot fish before I fished for them. And I noticed as I was floating over these runs that the big males of the system were actually closer to the fast water, hunkered in the slot. And most of my presentation, my tips, I probably was over there swinging over their heads by about three to four feet, maybe five feet, for sure three feet. And I was coming across there pretty aggressively. And they were just a little bit deeper. So what I chose to do the next day was to fish super, super aggressive tips and swing the big, you know, hardy part of the main seam, not off the seam. And the tip selection was too heavy, so when I got near the bank, it would get really prickly. But believe it or not, day three, I finally got one of those big males to chomp on my fly. So there is a little bit of thought process of big fish, big current. So that could even go for your horn waters too. In most cases, you know, it's better to choose the sink tip on the heavier side. That's my philosophy. And adjust water column depth and swing speed by the angle of your cast. I call it muscling tip. Think about more like manipulating your tip through the swing. You know, like if you have a heavier sink tip, you can cast on a sharper angle downstream. You can make a mend and let it come through tail first really slowly. You can let that little bit of a bow and get a little bit of chase going with that heavier tip and put the fly broadside. So, you know, there is no wrong answer to that, but I do say that I fish a little heavier tip than you might would be if you're, of course, fishing for summer runs or some other West Coast true steelhead there where they'll come up off the bottom more readily than some of the Great Lakes strains will. And then always, of course, think about that angle of attack and rather than just bombing it across the bank and, you know, letting it roll, you know, keeping your rod up in that. As far as when it comes down to sink tips, I'm going to throw in a little bit that Dave's going to throw in some information that you can shoot back to the website. And for in and around the Great Lakes, you know, for the grain weights and the stream flows, and it's going to range anywhere from around 55 grains of tungsten, you know, and five foot of sink six material all the way up to about 120 grains for high water conditions in my home streams. You know, on larger rivers in Michigan and, you know, like the Manistee or the Muskegon and all other larger rivers, it's a thing to incorporate intermediate Skagit heads. This is going to allow you to cut through surface current. It's going to slow the swing down. And it's going to allow you to maintain fishing depth longer and faster as soon as the cast lands. It'll enable you to not have to use, you know, 12 and 15 foot of T18. This will allow you to run links of, you know, 8 and 10 foot of T14. And it may be, if absolutely necessary, T18. But 
using that intermediate Skagit heads sinking will really help out. And it, that goes from all different, especially even king salmon fishing up in Alaska, pretty popular too. So that's one of the go-tos for some of the larger rivers. There's a wide, you know, variation of river flows, like the lows and the highs, right? So like in my home rivers, you know, it's going to be way lower than it's going to be like in the Michigan rivers. So the low flows, 700 feet cubic seconds is going to be around 250 average in the runoff rivers of Steelhead Alley. 750 cubic feet is low for Michigan rivers. So, you know, there's always this high and low. And feel free to reach out with any questions that you have for stream heights and best conditions. So, it's just so cool to try to master all the waters and its secrets, you know. And I realize that it can't be done in one's lifetime. You know, I still haven't mastered. I still learn every day, you know. Last on the list is, you know, what are you going to try you know, for rigging? You know, what's the fly, right? That's going to be the magic question. Well, if you had ask six guides, you're going to get six different answers, right? That's for sure. It's all about confidence, We'll break it down into just two categories, nymphing and swinging. You know, nymphing, let's do the rules of three again. So you're going to need a bait fish pattern, and egg patterns, and some type of aquatic bug patterns. And you need those in three sizes to match the water clarity, not patterns. Pick one or two good patterns in each realm. But make sure you time in three sizes for low, clear water, you know, stealthy, or high, high, dirty water. You know, you might go from a size 16 all the way up to a size 4 or 6. It all depends on the water visibility. They all should correlate, you know, to the river's ecosystem, right? And uh, think about what to expect. Do they have golden stones in them? Do a little more research. You know, go to your local fly shop. They're going to give you a lot of intel, of course. You know, what's in the river naturally? What bait fish migrate up from, you know, the lake? Is it, you know, bait fish coming in? You know, like a Lake Erie, you're going to have a lot of, you know, emerald shiners that come up from Lake Erie. So you want to have, make sure you have some, a lot of whites, right? You know, and uh, one thing I will say about indicator fishing is don't be afraid to drag fur. <laughs> Dragging fur under an indicator, meaning that, you can, not only using eggs and stoneflies and your bait fish pattern, don't think outside the box and try crawfish patterns, sculpin patterns, and darter patterns under your indicator. That's a highly underutilized patterns that you can really capitalize on, sometimes under heavy angling pressure or even a lot of clear water conditions. Last but not least is swung fly patterns. I once sat down at the vise, you know, and I figured that just in one pattern, I could probably change it in 30 ways and still be the same basic pattern. You know, it's crazy. I try not to get really super, dig too deep into it uh, when I'm swinging flies. You know, my first thought is, you know, mainly is unweighted or weighted, right? I tie a lot of um, flies where I can take the weight on or off. 
slide weights on, slide weights off. So, but I do fish mostly unweighted flies um, when I'm swinging flies. I think I can get the job done with uh, leader to sink tip ratios more than the weighted fly. The next would be, is it going to be a shank? Is it a tube? Is it going to be on a hook itself? And then the size goes back to the rules of three. I want three sizes of my six best patterns. Low water, average conditions, and high water. So, you know, it could range from anywhere from an inch and a half up to, say, maybe three and a half inches, no more than four inches. I feel that the perfect size swung flies around maybe two and a half inches long. I think that's a really good size for average conditions. If it's super, super blown out, then, you know, of course it's bigger. And if it's super low and clear, but two and a half inches is a good base of uh, fly to start with in general situations. You know, colors, you know, it's pretty obvious. Everybody sort of knows, you know, the black, the purple, the blue, the pink, orange, white. Chartreuse are all base colors and you mix and match. You know, if I had to choose a few color combinations, you know, I think anywhere I fished, it would be Halloween. Black and orange, if it's on my wet fly alley shrimps, if it's on my swung flies, anywhere I go, it's going to be black and orange would be a good mixed with different color flashes. Orange, pink, that is going to be for just moving fish to see what's around. Fresh fish moving in, you know, in from the systems are going to move towards orange and pink. Um, where the darker colors sometimes will be a little more for the stale fish. When you look at those color combinations, though, I would say that I would go heavier on the black other than the orange or the, you know, the contrasting color. And then I would go heavier on the orange over the pink for contrasting colors. And then on my home waters, you know, white is a thing. You know, that you have to have white in your box of some sort, just as a minnow imitation, especially when the water gets to be around 18 inches to two foot visibility or more. I think that's really important to have in your box is that color combination. You know, one thing to look at is the famous egg sucking leech pattern. We've all used it. It's been a staple for all of our boxes for all species of migratory fish um, forever. But Kevin Feenstra, I feel, was the first to take it to the next level. Full-time fly fishing guide in Michigan. Swung fly, you know, cutting edge from day one. He replaced that standard chenille front head with ice dubby material. And that has taken, I think, the Great Lakes fishing into another realm of productiveness. You know, if you use his ice dub head style patterns and incorporate it to your favorite patterns, you cannot go wrong. I feel, you know, I'm not so much about those heads pushing water as as much as the contrasting subtle flash of that translucent ice dub over standard chenille. Last in the lineup, your needs in your fly box would be the family of river bait fish, chubs, sculpins, darters. And you want to have a pretty good half a box full of these in some earth tone colors. 
and three sizes also. A lot of times when the water is clear and you get these large male steelhead that post up singularly, you know, in these territorial spots, these go-to patterns of those natural bait fish that lurk around the bottoms, you know, even gobies um, patterns. But if you just basically make it looking like a darter or sculpin in the natural tones, it'll look like those some of those bait fish patterns that are in and around the river system naturally. And that is definitely has to be thought of when you're swinging a run, especially in clear waters. And, the, and they're not going for the bait fish patterns. And they're not going for your standard, you know, pinks and oranges and things like that. Well, I've been on for a long time, you know. It's uh, time to pull the plug on this episode. There's plenty more of information that we're going to be throwing out at you. You know, we're at the end of building this roadmap of uh, how to get things started. Hope you got a few tips. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, next time we're going to connect. You know, we're going to dive into the big water game where we're going to chat about chasing, you know, warm water species all through the Great Lakes region with some of the fishiest guys and gals uh, with a few interviews. Looking forward to it. Thanks for the listen to the Great Lakes podcast. Love to hear your feedback. Send any questions you have or topics that you want Dave and I to cover. And if you want to connect with me, you can always go to greatlakesflyfishing.com. Hit me up on Instagram, Great Lakes Dude, or Facebook, Jeff Liske. But thanks for the listen again and catch you on the next episode. There it is, Jeff Liske on the Great Lakes Podcast, part of the Wet Fly Swing Podcast and Swing Outdoors. I want to give Jeff a big thank you and thank you for listening this week. Stay tuned as we are going to get more episodes of the Great Lakes Do Podcast coming up this year. If you're enjoying these Great Lakes podcasts, please let me know or check in with Jeff anytime and give me a heads up. We'd love to get an update from you. And, uh, and if you have questions, let us know what you think you want us to get on here. We would love to get put something together for you on the next Great Lakes Podcast. And I am very excited, as I'm sure you are, to see that next Great Lakes Dude podcast. Talk to you soon.